stand in his stead tonight. Um, and, and when somebody's filling in, there's always uh, the uh, problem of overthinking what you should do, what you should talk about, what you, if there's anything different that you might want to bring. But in God's providence, I'm not doing anything different. I'm going to be uh, preaching, speaking about the cross of Christ. And in God's providence as well, it, 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 piggies, it piggybacks and follows up on Brother Vic's message this morning very nicely. And so I will simply bring forth the gospel tonight, and I will do so, however, by looking at it by way of warning to not depart from it. I want to act as a way of reminder that the gospel of Christ is not up for editing. It does not need to be improved upon, and it is the one and only solution to mankind's greatest need. And so we'll spend some time in one of my favorite epistles, the epistle to the Galatians. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Galatians 1, 1 through 9. This fiery epistle from the Apostle Paul stands out as one of the great, uh, stands out as great importance for a number of reasons. Uh, But the overarching reason is that the excellency of the gospel is put forth. The unchangeable, fixed, authoritative, and life saving gospel shines bright in this epistle. The context of the letter is such that it demanded a firm but loving rebuke from the apostle. The letter isn't to a single church, but rather to a region where multiple churches had either been planted, established, or discipled by the apostle himself. But while the Galatians received Paul in the the gospel, it didn't take long after he left until they began to waver on the essentials of the gospel, and we're on the brink of destruction. So that is the motivation for this letter that he wrote. False teachers uh, came in, they crept in, they followed behind him, and were influencing them with the false gospel. They were questioning his apostolic authority and essentially making Christ an insufficient Savior. They perverted the doctrine of justification and even made sanctification primarily a work of man. So their gospel that these false teachers were were proclaiming, they were demanding adherence to certain Mosaic laws. They, They butchered the good news, and in doing so made themselves enemies of the gospel. And then the situation became worse as Paul gets word that many in the church are actually being persuaded by it. So there's a theological crisis in Galatia. So you can understand, if you're familiar with Galatians, the tone of the letter. It's much different than his other letters. It's like if you're talking to someone who's in danger, you don't speak in a flippant manner or beat around the bush. Communication must be clear and with no ambiguity. Even today, we need to hear this warning again and again. We should never think that we've grown past the simplicity of the gospel or that we don't need warnings as such to keep us alert. 
And that's my hope tonight, not to bring you anything new. For anything new that I might bring you would just be an old heresy. So I'm going to read the first nine verses, comment on them, and leave it to God. <clears throat> Galatians 1, 1 through 9, says Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. So our first reminder tonight is the authority of Christ's apostles. The authority was given to, given to him by sheer grace. He was called by grace alone. They are not inherently different from any other person. But when commissioned as an apostle of Christ, their words carry divine weight. As they are moved by the Holy Spirit to speak the very word of God. It's the doctrine of inspiration. And he gets to this right away in verse 1. This is what we call his office. He's an apostle. Whenever someone speaks about something important, we like to know who they are, their credentials, and what authority they speak on. When you go to the doctor, you like to know their credentials and what authority they have. You can use a light example, and if you have one of your children go to the other child and say, wash your hands, it's time for dinner. The other child doesn't necessarily is going to be provoked to listen to that other child. However, if that child would say, Mom said, go wash your hands, it's time for dinner, all of a sudden that changes things. Because she's coming with authority now. She was being sent by someone with authority. And so you better listen. Paul, as an apostle, is speaking on behalf of the Lord Jesus. And he usually opened his letters like this as well. Other letters, he did the same thing. But here, it's more pronounced. He spells it out. He goes to the origin of his calling. It came from God himself. This is a very serious thing for him to say. His commission was not from man. He wasn't sent from a church. It was... He, he was... It was received, as it says, through Jesus Christ. He didn't receive this information secondhand. Many think, and I agree, that these false teachers were trying to undermine his authority. So that's probably why he comes out out of the gate in this manner. Through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And that's a statement on the oneness yet distinctness of the Godhead. It's also a statement on the humanity of Jesus as well as his divinity as he places him with the Father, Jesus and the Father. 
who raised him from the dead, it says. The God who raised Jesus from the dead is the God of the Bible. There is no other God. And there's an unsettling attack in our day, if you've noticed, from some in the church at large that downplay the authority of the Apostle Paul. They have differing reasons and motivations for doing so. But they like to argue that some of his writing was only for those people in that time, in those cultures that he was writing to, and it only pertained to them. We're reminded that these words are divinely inspired, and they're eternal. These words are as if Christ himself is speaking. Many, I've heard... uh, uh, I had an old pastor who said, if you have read letters in your Bibles, that's fine, but all the other letters should be just a different shade of red because it's, from, it's all the Word of God. Verse 2 says, and all the brethren who are with me. So now, all Paul needs is the affirmation of Christ. He, he needs the authority of Christ to affirm his message. That's really all he needs. But he does know that he is not alone. These brothers aren't named, but, but they are present and endorsing his message to the churches in Galatia. So he still addresses them as a church. You know, there is no, no doubt still believers there. Uh, that's the nature of the visible church, that within the visible local church, especially if there's any reasonable size to it, will be, there will be unbelievers among them. That's just the nature of it. But truly saved individuals who make up the true church will never die. And then we go to verse 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is about the only greeting that Paul gives, grace and peace. In other greetings, for example, in Ephesians, he says, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And in Philippians, he thanks them for their partnership in the gospel. And he thanked God, he thanked God for the saints in Colossae and even in Corinthians. Nothing like that here. But he does pray for the believers that God's grace and peace would be theirs. Gr- grace is God's unmerited favor. It also alludes to God's transforming power. And grace is an important reference here because these churches are essentially denying the grace that Christ gives them. Peace is also a gift from God. It's a result of right standing with Him. No longer enemies, but friends. We no longer desire to hate our neighbor, but love them. This peace is supernatural and a natural consequence of trusting in Christ and His gospel. Here's another mention of the Lord Jesus and God the Father. Again, another attribution to equality and deity of both divine persons. Looking at verse 4, there are some things mentioned here that are worth saying. You can see that Paul is taking every opportunity to proclaim the work of Christ to the Galatians. Right at the beginning, I mean, he is just a couple of lines in. He says, who gave himself for our sins. We should ponder those six words the rest of our lives. Within that statement is so much truth. So much truth that tells us about Christ and so much truth that tells us about ourselves. 
for us, we can't save ourselves. That our sins cost the Holy Son of God to give His very life in the most horrendous way and to suffer the wrath of God for us. That should be convicting. And for Christ, it tells us of His love. It tells us of the character of God that He would humble Himself, take on human nature, and die. And not just die, but die the death of the cross. So when Paul says, when Paul says this, he is delivering the same message that he received from Christ. He would eventually deliver this to the Corinthians as well. When he said in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, when he said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The grace and peace that Paul hopes for the Galatians is only possible because of this divine act. And this act of substitution is seen throughout the Old Testament in types and shadows, as Brother Vic talked about this morning. And is seen in the prophets, such as the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. But may we continue to feel the weight of this truth, that he gave himself for our sins. That our sins were so heinous that God himself took on human flesh and had to die a cursed death to pay for them. That should be enough to throw away any notion that we can contribute to our salvation. But this is the love of God. Because we can't repay our sin debt, we can't work our way to God, so He comes down to us and gives Himself. And look at the word our. He says our sins. Paul throws himself, includes himself in this. Even the greatest of saints, if I can use this, that term, is in need of the grace of God through Christ and His death on the cross. There are obviously many things that the cross accomplished, but, and he mentions another one of them here in verse 4 to deliver us from this present evil age. The, this age is referring to the present evil world brought in by man that we ushered in. Notice the word deliver. We were delivered, which means we were once held captive. We were bound and helpless. We were passive in our deliverance. We were of the world until Christ delivered us. And since we were the ones delivered, we take no credit for that. But we are no longer slaves to this world and to its master. This is where that expression we use sometimes, in the world but not of it. There's, we're stuck in between this no longer and not yet time. It's a profound tension to be in the world, but also delivered from it. One commentator said, God's promises are already realized in Christ, but the present evil age still exists. So that believers must remain vigilant and keep putting their trust in the cross of Christ. But if we are in Christ, we ultimately have nothing to fear. And this deliverance is all according to the will of our God and Father, as it says. According to the will of our God and Father. All of redemptive history goes according to God's will. According to His plan. When, where, who, and how it goes. Paul wants these Galatians to know that, that this gospel he's preaching is according to God's will. 
Calvin comments, will denotes what is commonly called good pleasure. The meaning is that Christ suffered for us, not because we were worthy or because of anything we had done, but because such was the purpose of God. And whenever we consider the grace of God, it should move us to give glory to God. Verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Paul got going here. He gave himself for our sins. He, the God who raised him from the dead. And then he immediately goes for the glory of God. God's glory is the beauty and majestic greatness of who he is. Whether it's in creation, providence, salvation, or judgment, his greatness is put on display. This is what the saving work of God in Christ is supposed to do for all of us. Lead us to doxology, to praise. God delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt so they would be able to worship Him. God is seeking worshipers, as Christ said to the woman at the well. As we move on in the letter, there's really no thanksgiving part that sometimes is included in His letters. There is no mention of his thankfulness for the advancement of the gospel or their partnership in the gospel, but we do have a rebuke. We have a rebuke for their potential apostasy. Instead of reading an apostolic blessing, he has an apostolic curse. So the body of the letter now kind of starts in verse 6 and gives, he gives the current situation and really the reason for the letter. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So he begins by reacting to the situation at large. He marvels. Not necessarily anger, this doesn't indicate, but in the context has a meaning of displeasure and irritation. Can also be translated amazed, astounded, surprised. So, displeasure and irritation is a good way to describe labor done in vain. We've all done something in vain, and it's irritating. He is reckoning with that fact here, but he is concerned for the Galatians. He looks at them, he looks at them as his children. Reading Acts 13 and 14, we see these South Galatian churches. Um, where most commentators think this is where these churches were, where Paul and Barnabas established these churches, God was doing great work, a great work among them. Both Jew and Gentile were coming to faith. Churches were being started. And so it's, 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 he's marveled at this. He's frustrated to see that this work is possibly being undone. The word turning helps us understand how much danger they are in. They are truly becoming invested in this other gospel. They have, they've done an about-face. It can also be understood as deserting. This, this word that's used here is used 18 times in the Septuagint where it translates a variety of Hebrew words, meaning to transplant, to set in another place, to alter or change. The word is also used to mean a political traitor. So he's saying here that they were spiritual traitors. So this was no minor shift in secondary matters of doctrine. 
In Jewish literature, it can mean apostasy, as it means today, as we would use it. But here, but here, he uses the word in the sense of it being in the process of happening. They haven't, they haven't gone yet, but they're in dangerous territory. They're entertaining this, go- this false gospel. And notice who it says they have turned against. God himself. It doesn't say they are deserting it. Or, the, or they're not deserting Paul. But deserting God. This isn't about Paul. And if you look at the wording of so soon, it didn't take long. People have compared this to the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. In that episode, Israel had been freed from bondage in Egypt and had just received the law at Mount Sinai. Moses had had gone up to the mountain. And when Moses had left, as soon as he leaves... The Israelites fashioned themselves a golden calf and worshipped it. And it says in Exodus 32, 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. You recall after creation, just shortly after, Adam fell. It didn't take long for Satan to come in after and corrupt God's good creation. And he did. And it's happening here in our country, in our day, Christianity flourished in the early days of this country. And before that, with Whitfield and Edwards, and many places that once affirmed the faith have turned aside. Many institutions of higher learning, founded by great theologians, have turned the other way. And Galatia is no different. They have turned aside quickly to a different gospel, putting themselves back in chains. This gospel is one that each individual who's received it has been called. So Paul is trying to give them a little theology lesson here. Give them some depth to this calling, to this salvation. The Galatians should understand, and us as well, that our situation before Christ was so desperate and serious that we were utterly helpless and hopeless. We were dead in trespasses and sins, and as God who calls into existence the things that do not exist, he called us when we were dead and made us alive. Paul is exalting God and beginning to explain. He's explaining to the Galatians his, God's plan of salvation. should be a humbling thought, not one that provokes pride, but as God effectually calls each one to himself, we begin to exercise faith in Christ. This calling is by grace alone, not of works. We know Ephesians 2.8 that says we are saved by grace through faith and not of works. And Paul mentions elsewhere in writing to Timothy saying, who saved us, God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This calling always leads us to the grace of Christ. He calls us into Christ. In verse 6, he mentions the grace of Christ. Paul is making them see who and what they are turning from. They are turning from the grace of Christ. But the Galatians are entertaining the notion that the gospel of Christ is insufficient, as Paul proclaimed it. Gospel means good tidings. It means good news. 
What Paul is saying here is that this other way you are turning to is actually bad news because there is no hope that way. That's why Paul says it's not another. There are false gospels because there are false teachers. And by nature, unfortunately, by nature we resist grace. It's part of the evil in us. Grace is a pride killer. To receive the true gift of salvation is to come empty-handed. It's to come as a desperate beggar. It's to come humbly. To exercise faith alone is unnatural, quite frankly, to us. Our flesh wants to resist it. We think we can contribute something. We think we have to contribute something. That's why salvation is all of God. Then we get, we are finally introduced to these troublemakers, as he would later call them, as, uh, and their desire to give them their own version of the gospel, one that they have concocted to make it acceptable to them. In context, for Jews to be told they no longer must follow the Mosaic law, such as circumcision or the dietary laws, would be a radical thing. We're far removed from this context to probably grasp that. But these are Gentiles. These baby Christian Gentiles would be intrigued to hear of Jewish theologians spout their theology. They would no doubt be convincing. False teachers are convincing. But Paul says they're perverting the gospel of Christ. As convincing as they may be, they are perverting the gospel of Christ. Specifically, justification by the righteousness of Christ through faith alone is what they wanted to undo. But the wonders of justification by Christ alone cannot be credited to another. It cannot be added to or subtracted from. To pervert it is to distort it, in which Paul says brings eternal consequences. The true gospel is that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life of righteousness and died a cursed death on the tree for us so that his life of righteousness might be imputed to us and our sins might be taken away by the blood of his cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead. His resurrection confirmed and validated his person and work. And now anyone, Jew, Gentile, men, women, children, by faith alone in Him, will be legally declared righteous. We are no longer under the sentence of condemnation. We cannot contribute to our salvation. It is an act of God alone, and we only receive it by faith. The false gospels can appear subtle. These false teachers aren't denying faith in Christ. But they deny that faith in Christ is sufficient. That's the subtlety. Faith <clears throat> is a sufficient cause of justification. I've heard the analogy of oxygen as an example. Oxygen is necessary for a fire. But it's not sufficient for a fire. If, I, if oxygen was sufficient, we'd all be in trouble right now. But it's not sufficient. It's only necessary. Faith is not only necessary, but sufficient. That's the subtlety of some false gospels. They want to add 
something to faith alone. They make faith to be necessary but not sufficient, whereas faith is sufficient. Then we get to verse 8 and 9. <clears throat> but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Paul is making his point, is he not? The gospel is not something we are allowed to negotiate. It's not something we are allowed to tinker with. It's very sacred. And while we stated the importance of Paul's authority and his credentials, something that could be even more important is what's the content of his message. When we think about entertaining somebody speaking, credentials or whatever, that, that's all fine. But what is, what is the content of his message? That's what we need to hear. What are the words that he's saying? Paul commended the Bereans in Acts 17 as noble for searching the scriptures to see if what he was saying is true. It's commendable. This curse is pronounced on anyone who would change the gospel or alter it. But if a curse is pronounced on those who proclaim it, there is certainly a damnable penalty for those who receive it. Especially for those who had once received the truth. Paul is as serious as somebody can get in this instance and concerned for the purity of the gospel that he puts himself and the brethren that are with him that we talked about earlier in this under this divine curse, if he should ever preach a different gospel. The gospel is divinely given. Its origin is from heaven. No creature has the authority to alter it or amend it. Even an angel in all its radiant glory would proclaim a different gospel. They would be ruined. False religions have even been started by supposed angels delivering divine revelation. Proclaiming a gospel that says works of the law are required for justification are leading their hearers to a Christless eternity. Paul is, is breathing fire here, right out of the gate. And verse 9 is essentially a repeat of verse 8, except he changes who the messenger is. He repeats the curse. He's emphasizing the severity of the situation to drive home to them that their foolishness of giving ear to these messengers. But notice verse 9 is slightly different in his grammatical structure. Verse 8 is more of a kind of a hypothetical situation. Verse 9 indicates the possibility that the crisis is going on right now. He has now covered all his bases of who could possibly deliver a message. An apostle, angels, or literally anyone else. It doesn't matter who it is. If the message is about the man-centered performance or the rejection of Christ being an all-sufficient Savior, it's false. This curse doesn't make exceptions. It doesn't matter who the messenger is. And they should know how to tell the difference here because he says if they take a different gospel than what they had received. So they had received it. They know the truth. There's a greater condemnation for those who have heard the truth and reject it. 
I see this in many ways as one of Paul's most loving letters, to be quite honest, to follow up with these churches the way he did and to rebuke them, at the same time encouraging them in the true gospel. Unloving would be to let them continue as they were going. Proverbs 27, 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Sometimes you have to speak hard things. And some lessons for us. This situation isn't unique to the Galatians. There's nothing new under the sun. There are many influences that can lead us away. Uh, one drop of poison in a cup taints the entire cup. So by God's grace here, this church here, faith, is standing firm on the gospel. But we're surrounded. We live in a land that is deserting it for another one. One that minimizes the atonement. One that adds social activism onto faith in Christ. These false gospels attempt to overthrow the all-sufficient merits of Christ. Many say the cross was only an example of sacrificial love. By saying that, they dismantle his death on the cross as one being substitutionary. Many are put off by the blood. We have many songs that we sing about the blood. We're constantly talking about the blood. They think it's barbaric. They think it's an antiquated way of thinking. But the blood of Christ is what, is what washes away our sin. Many require works of some kind of another. Maybe it's water baptism to be the thing that finally saves you. By doing this, they deny the all-sufficient merits of Christ. We must have a head and a heart knowledge of the gospel. Distortions of the gospel will be subtle, as I said. Any theology that has our own works or our own doing as the basis of our relationship with God is not the gospel of Christ. Romans 4 5 says, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Thankfully, many throughout church history have stood up to false gospels. Heresy and false gospels will always be a part of this evil age. And it's our turn to contend for it. They heeded Paul's words to Timothy when he said, teach what accords with sound doctrine and to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. By God's grace, Faith Bible Church is a gospel-preaching and Christ-centered fellowship. Even so, let us be reminded of these words that Christ is enough. And when Satan uses false teachers and apostates to persuade you otherwise, we need to faithfully cling to Christ and trust Him and not go back to wearing that yoke of bondage. We are now free in Christ to now obey His commands out of a love for Him and gratitude to Him. Rejoice! That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this life-saving gospel. For the work of Jesus Christ. And for the application of, of its work by the Holy Spirit to our hearts. 
We thank you that this is your plan and not ours, for we would have ruined it. Thank you that you love us. We pray now that you will help us be steadfast and stand firm in the faith. Grant us tonight, Lord, your grace that we need each and every day. We thank you for Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. Bless everyone that hears these words tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Matt, for that clear and concise exposition of Galatians. Uh, <clears throat> so, if you'd like uh, to stand as you're turning to hymn 81, hymn 81. Uh, hopefully you know it. You better indicate to me if you don't know it. Uh, he leadeth me, O blessed thought. Do you know that one? He leadeth me, O blessed thought. Okay, all right. I want to make sure I didn't want to sing solo again. <laughs> so. He leadeth me. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> he leadeth me, oh, blessed thought, oh, words with heavenly comfort fraught. Whate'er I do, where'er I be, Still tis God's hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me. By his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be. For by his hand he leadeth me. Sometimes mid scenes of deepest gloom, sometimes where Eden's bowers bloom, by water still, O oh, troubled sea, still tis his hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by his hand he leadeth me. Lord, I would clasp thy hand in mine, nor ever murmur, nor repine. Content, whatever, Lord, I see, tis thy hand 
them that leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by his hand he leadeth me. And when my task on earth is done, when by thy grace the victory is won, in death's cold well I will not flee, since God through Jordan leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by his hand he leadeth me. Thank you. Good singing. Thank you, Brother Matt, for your clear, concise preaching this evening. And thank you, Brother Jeff, for your song leading this evening. Let's pray and close out our service. Heavenly Father, we do once again this evening approach your throne and ask that we will be safely led back to our places where we can lay our heads at night and safely take comfort in you, that your work your work, your plan of redemption has come to fruition. And we take comfort in the fact that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is enough, and he's given us all we need. So help us, and help us to remember to pray for one another, lift one another up, and to think on these things. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <laughs>